you want You can't always get what you want But if you try sometimes You might find Welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host. You'll find us here on PRN.FM Mondays at 10 a.m. if you're in the East Coast of the U.S. If you're elsewhere in the world, you got to figure it out. <laughs> uh, whatever 10 a.m. is Eastern time, whatever it is your time. And you'll find our back shows in the PRN archives at visionaries.fm. Podbean.com. That's P-O-D-B-E-A-N. And I want to talk today about Archer McLuhan. And uh, um, a really interesting character. And the reason I wanted to go into McLuhan in a little bit of detail is he's somebody that everybody's heard of. And I know I teach... uh, in a really cool school, um, a school of art, architecture, and design. And <clears throat> so all my colleagues, all my younger colleagues, have heard of McLuhan. You know, it's a, just a buzzword. But none of them have read it. So um, I really don't, they don't know, you know, in detail what exactly he said. So I just want to review that. And it, it's interesting that we should be doing something a little bit, uh, to use a bad word, academic-y. And in doing that, where uh, I'm recalling the 1960s when it was uh, just, well, there was a lot of things about the 60s, but it was an era rich with ideas. So we were knee-deep in McLuhan, Herbert Marcuse, Paul Goodman, uh, Timothy Leary, and Ram Dass with their LSD. And there was uh, a kind of intellectual fervor. And I would recall, for example, there were these uh, intellectual stars, you know, like Norman Mailer. So if Norman Mailer had a new book come out, you had to read it. And the journal of the day was, well, there were a couple of them, but the key one was the New York Review of Books. And sometimes I'd subscribe, but if I didn't subscribe, I'd always keep an eye out for it on the newsstand. And if I saw Susan Sontag on the cover, I'd have to pick it up, you know, like, what's she saying? And same thing with Norman Mailer, what's he saying? And does it talk about how it's a different world? If you, um, I can hardly stomach those uh, late night TV shows. I don't even know who they currently are. Is it what, Jimmy Kimmel or something? I don't know one from another. But it's totally formulaic in that they have on the star of a current, you know, just released movie and promote the movie. And even when they have on something more interesting, I recall I did watch a Conan show because he had on the cast the Big Bang Theory. So I said, wow, you know, I'm I'm a Big Bang Theory addict. Only the old ones. <laughs> I don't watch the new ones. I watch the repeats over and over. And uh, so he has on the cast, and you could tell that Conan had never seen Big Bang Theory. You know, he's asking the most insipid questions of these icons of our lives, 
you know, Sheldon and Penny and these people that have grown into many people's lives. And here they are, uh, an opportunity of how, what's it like for you to inhabit this character? Nothing, just the most stupid banalities. And so I didn't have a lot of respect for Conan, but now I have less. But here's what it was like in the old days. So, you you know, these people were preceded by people like, say, Johnny Carson, whom I'm sure you've heard of. Johnny Carson would have on Norman Mailer to talk about his latest book. It wasn't always the most comfortable interview. He would have on opera singers, not just pop singers. And uh, it's not that that stuff is gone. We now have all these other channels with, um, you know, PBS channels and C-SPAN channels and stuff like that. But it was mixed in with everyday culture. And they would have McLuhan on. And it that's gone. And now it's just the most stupid, well, <laughs> the most stupid banalities, right? Just to complain here. So uh, one, of the, one of the characters of those days was Marshall McLuhan. And uh, just um, to sort of open up, uh, let me begin with a, a clip. Now, I'm, you might have seen the movie Annie Hall. So this is one of the early, well, no, I would say mid-career Woody Allen movies. The early ones were, you know, like um, um, Sleeper and stuff like that. Uh, kind of slapstick comedy. We now are highly respective of it because of the immense uh, cinematic figure Woody Allen has become. But uh, the movie that sort of really solidified that he could do a serious movie was Annie Hall. So here's Woody Allen playing himself, and he's dating Diane Keaton, playing Annie Hall. And, you know, it's an off-again, on-again Rocky, because, you know, Woody Allen is playing himself as a highly insecure, uh, well, mostly insecure. But they're standing online in a movie theater, and he picks up a, uh, a blowhard behind him, uh, expounding about McLuhan, and Woody Allen says, you, you have it all wrong, and uh, does something then that one might wish to do. So let's uh, check in and see, uh, uh, hear McLuhan in his own voice with cut one. McLuhan's work. Really, really. I happen to teach a class at Columbia called TV, Media, and Culture. So I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan will have a great deal of validity. Oh, do you? Yeah. Well, that's funny because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. <laughs> so, so yeah. Just let me, let me, let me, come over here, a second. Oh, tell I heard, I heard what you were saying. You, you know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong? How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. Okay, so that's, uh, you just heard McLuhan's voice, and we'll get some more clips as we go along, but, uh, so what what was McLuhan all about, and why is this important? So let me say something a little bit strong, and that is, Marsha McLuhan, in a key book of his Understanding Media, was, is, the most important, insightful, accurate commentator on 
the effects of the computer and the Internet on and Facebook and social media on our culture today. Now, here's the tricky thing. McLuhan wrote his book in 1964. So uh, 30 years before the Internet, 40 years before Facebook, he described what it was and what it would be doing to our culture. And you can pick up that book to this day and just be blown away. Now, um, interesting thing about that book, it's very choppy. It's very, oh, you know, just sort of shoots out wild, impressionistic, weird things. And, uh, but it... um, even so, it's difficult to read. Even I, you know, I start reading it uh, today, and you know, I I I read it when it came out, and so it's pretty implanted. I've read it a few times, but uh, what I do for my students is recommend an abbreviated illustrated version, in effect, and so that is a book called and got to get this book. It's a cool book. The medium is the massage. Now, we'll go into that in more detail, but McLuhan is known for his phrase, the medium is the message, and we'll talk about what that means in a, in a minute. But uh, there was this cool guy named Jerome Agel, and what Agel did is he, pro- he approached the cutting-edge people of his day, like Buckminster Fuller who had written a lot of books, but you couldn't read, you know, (laughs) let's say young, distracted people couldn't read them. They were too much. So he would produce a short, you know, like, let me just take a look at this book here. Well, there are no page numbers. There we go. A short 150-page book, um, 90% illustrations, you know, like uh, uh, what we would call a graphic novel. But it's a graphic nonfiction. And... Uh, so there would be – there's some text, but a lot of it is a big picture in just one sentence. And it, it really all the ideas of understanding media are, are, are there. So let me read some quotes on that, and then we'll go a little bit into the theory. So very opening – I'm going to have to describe this, but very first page of the book shows a dish – with a broken, open, raw egg, the yolk's intact, and there's a Xerox on the, on the yolk of the raw egg. How cool is that? You can Xerox on a raw egg. So uh, today, when I show that slide, well, I've been showing that slide since I started teaching in 1969, and then I would say, why aren't we Xeroxing our automobiles? You know, like... Why is a, I don't know, Lamborghini more expensive than a Honda? Is it more expensive to Xerox a page of Shakespeare than it is to Xerox a page of my stupid course outline? Uh, No, costs the same, penny a page, whatever Xeroxing is. So if you were to make automobiles by Xeroxing them, then any car would cost the same as another. it just, you just have to make a good original, like Shakespeare made a good original that we Xerox that page. So there's a thought. Um, 
So, you know, I would just sort of end with that question. Why aren't we Xeroxing our automobiles? Today, I show that Xerox on a raw egg next to a 3D printer. We can now 3D print our automobiles. And in fact, um, you know, uh, a Honda Accord is a pretty good car uh, compared to, uh, I don't want to put anybody down, but my 1968 Chevy Chevelle, I have right now, I have a, I usually keep my car for 10 or 20 years. Uh, I kept my 68 Chevy Chevelle for 20 years. So I know a lot about 68 Chevy Chevelles. Like you have to replace the shocks every three years. You have to replace uh, the distributor cap and the wires every year or the thing gets done in by wet weather. I had to replace the muffler every three or four years, the exhaust system every 10 years. Uh, you get a new car today, you never replace the muffler. You know, remember Midas muffler. <laughs> you bring your car and get it. Nobody replaces their muffler. They last forever. They made them right. They make them out of stainless steel. And uh, and then I used to, you know, every third time I get gasoline, I check the oil. I don't check the oil anymore. I should. Uh, but the, the oil level doesn't. Well, why doesn't the oil level go down? Because... The loose fit of the cylinder in the um, in the cylinder shaft in an old car, '68 Chevy Chevelle, the uh, oil would blow by the rings into the into the cylinder head and burn, and you'd use up your oil. It would leak out. Well, today they make everything so precise and tight that. You know, you get your—I get my oil changed every 3,000 miles, and it, it, the level has not gone down during that time. So, uh, you know, we are making highly quality cars with less and less people. One of the things, you know, Trump said, I'm going to bring those foreign jobs back. Well, a lot of those jobs don't exist anymore. It takes a quarter as many people to make a car today, no matter where you're making it, uh, as it did because it's being made by super precise robots. So, you know, go, go, to, go to Google Image and look up the inside of a Tesla factory. Uh, and not a lot of people in there. Anyway, we open up with a Xerox on a raw egg. And um, there's a quote from uh, Alfred North Whitehead. This quote's probably from the 1950s. But he says, the major advances in civilization are processes that all but wreck the societies in which they occur. So, um, you know, we're going to get the new stuff, and that ain't so good for the old stuff. So 2012 was the year that Instagram, with 13 employees, was sold uh, to for a billion dollars. It's the same year Kodak went bankrupt with 40,000 employees. So uh, now Kodak sold paper film, which is getting replaced by digital. And, of course, the irony is that Kodak invented the digital camera and then refused to make them until it was too late. Therefore, they made them for a while, but they were overwhelmed by the uh, uh, Japanese uh, camera makers. But... The, the thing is, uh, Kodak did have uh, an insight, and Kodak would say, we are in the business of memories. 
not, you know, chemical film, but memories, the pictures you take of your children, your vacation, uh, where you grew up. Well, okay, where do you put those memories? Well, you get this, uh, you get this little uh, three-by-four print uh, that fades, and you stick it in a, on the black paper in an album. And, um, and my mother did a really good job of that. She's got all these albums from every decade of our lives. Uh, I'm working on editing her memoir right now. So I have to dig up these photos, get them scanned, and they're going to be in the, in the book. But the, um, okay, but what, how do you share them? You know, people, well, they had this deal where you got two copies. <laughs> you know, and you want to make another copy. Where the hell did I put that, that, uh, those negatives? <laughs> yeah, like you're going to, re- and then, you, you know, you take the negatives and there's 36 on a roll, 24 or 36. And so there's six strips of six images each. And you're sitting there holding them up to the light, you know, with your fingers on the edges so you don't get fingerprints on it. And, and of course, the negative is negative. So, the, you know, which is really hard with a color print because all the colors are reversed. And you're trying to figure, is that the shot I want? I can't, is that, is that, you know, our little girl on the lawn or is that the dog? <laughs> and you know, finally, you know, you really, and then you're going to take that one strip back to the back to the photo store and say, I want four copies of number 11A, because, you know, the numbers never really line up with the prints. Uh, so, you know, that was the best the technology could do at that time. Instagram comes along. There were other technologies, but Instagram really nailed it. Where, okay, we're making digital images. Now you post your digital image and all your friends can see it. Problem solved. Now, another issue there. Uh, My mother's got pictures going back to her grandparents in these albums, you know, from the late 1800s. And this is aunt so-and-so and and great-grandfather so-and-so and and labeled. And she's she's made all these um, genealogy charts and timelines and and all this cool stuff. I don't know what I'd do with it all. But, um, you know, is Instagram going to be there in 10 years, 20 years? You know, what what about these? Well, that's a problem. But in the meantime, at least all your friends can see it today. So uh, that's what destroyed Kodak, and that's what Alfred North White is uh, talking about. So um, McLuhan says, the medium or process of our time, electronic technology, is reshaping and restructuring patterns of social interdependence in every aspect of our personal life. Hmm. That's what we mean about living our lives on Facebook. Your family, the family circle has widened. And we really have, do have this change. You know, people who 
uh, you know, you might write a letter to some somebody you went to high school with and you're still sort of close with, but of course, they live in another town. And maybe you write a letter twice a year, you make a phone call uh, every two months. Uh, now, you're in touch with them all the time. You're following what they're up to uh, through Facebook and Twitter and et cetera. Your neighborhood. Electronic circuitry has overthrown the regime of time and space and pours upon us instantly and continuously this concern of all other men. Well, at least everybody in our circle uh, just to get a little bit morbid, I have a, a classmate from high school who is a real techie. He had a, a major tech career, excuse me, <coughs> involved with some of the, the major technologies of our time that you would know. And he's now in his retirement. He's got a little airplane, and he flies around and, and posts. He sends these long uh, chain emails of his latest trip with all these pictures of him and his wife going, you know, wherever they, they're traveling. But he's doing the class website for my, just so you know, Great Neck North High School class of 59. Although I don't really think of it as North because it really didn't split, I think, until my last year or the year after uh, I graduated. So today there's a consciousness of these two different high schools, but when I was there, it was only one. But anyway, um, so, you know, pictures, notes, emails, phone numbers, just all this contact information. So I'm sort of going through this and recalling people I knew. So my neighborhood has sort of uh, expanded. Your education there's a world of difference between the modern home environment of the integrated electronic information and the classroom. So uh, think about that. Uh, so you go to the classroom, and to this day, right, you're sitting in rows, and the teacher's writing on a blackboard. <laughs> I do. I write on a blackboard. I, my kids at least don't sit in rows. I get there. I get to always get to class early and put the chairs in a big circle so that we can at least uh, communicate with each other. But you know, in the home environment, you're you're on Wikipedia, you're on um, Google, you're on Facebook, you're on Twitter, and to me, Twitter is serious stuff. I I follow. Uh, leading tech gurus of our time. And so you really get up-to-date news that way, you know, before somebody gets the information, puts it in. Actually, when it first came out, I was so excited by Wired Magazine that it would keep us up-to-date. I don't—who reads Wired Magazine anymore? You're like, you know about this stuff the moment it happens rather than six months later when somebody does an article. Your job. When this circuit learns your job, what are you going to do? <laughs> we talked about, we're going to talk about that next week when um, my guest will be uh, Louis Arana, who's an artificial intelligence expert, and talk about, uh, you know, more and more jobs are being replaced by tech and 
you know, when, is this going to happen? When's it going to happen? What's Think about telephone operators, right? Uh, now, just to tell you how old I am, just because we lived in uh, we lived out in the country when I was a little kid. But you know, around kindergarten, first grade time, our telephone did not have a dial on it. You picked up the phone, and the operator said, "Number, please." <laughs> And then, you know, you said, you know, one, two, three, whatever the number was. And uh, <laughs> you remember those old movies where they show hotels where there's an operator and she's got this this long electric cord with a plug and she plugs it in a slot. That's what the operator did to contact, you know, to connect a phone call when I was a kid. And then we had dials. So my first dial phone when we moved had uh, we had a party line. <laughs> You know, the the place, the country was booming after World War II. They didn't have enough lines. So it was basically your phone was an extension phone with three other people. You pick up the phone, there's somebody talking. Just like you pick up the phone, there's somebody upstairs talking, you know. Um, and so you had to wait till they got off. <laughs> uh, and so it needed less operators because with that dial, you could dial, but if you wanted long distance, you dialed, what was it, 611. 411 was information, 611 was long distance. And then you'd say, uh, long distance operator, I'd like to make a call in Chicago to, you know, 123 4567. And there was a long distance operator. Then they got those push buttons. And you would dial one. I don't know. What's the area code for Chicago? The area code for New York is 212. So you go one two one two six seven nine one two three four. So you would connect to New York or Chicago or L.A. or Washington. Uh, Philadelphia is 215. I know because I went to school there. Uh, but all those long-distance operators lost their jobs. They didn't have to... You know, make your long-distance call to Chicago or Philadelphia. That was—you did that by dialing <coughs> 212 or 215. Well, um, that's just the beginning. Uh, what's going to happen when uh, it really starts to happen? Anyway, we'll talk about that next week. So let's uh, do some more McLuhan uh, and his key notion is the medium is the message. The public. Now, by well, that, McLuhan, uh, he I... means that um, uh, when, tele- when television came along, said everybody said, look at the potential of this thing to educate. You know, imagine that there was documentaries all day, every day. And it wasn't. It was I Love Lucy. <laughs> and people said, oh, what a waste. He says, you don't get it. It doesn't matter whether it's I Love Lucy or an educational documentary. Television is, no matter what the content is, the important thing it's doing is reorganizing how our heads are arranged. And that's his phrase, the medium is the message. So let's go to cut two and see what he means by the medium is the message. Public. Well, Professor McLuhan, uh, I think we better deal with um, the uh, medium is the message before it does go into the ah. 21st century. Uh, when you say the, the medium is the message, does that leave any room at all for criticism of individual, say, television programs? Or content. 
Um, yes. <clears throat> you see, it doesn't much matter what you say on the telephone. The telephone as a service is a huge environment, and that is the medium. And the environment affects everybody. What you say on the telephone affects very few. And the same with radio or any other medium. What you print is nothing compared to the effect of the printed word. The printed word sets up a paradigm, a structure of awareness, which affects everybody in very, very drastic ways, and it doesn't very much matter what you print as long as you go on with that form of activity. You've said that uh, television promotes illiteracy. I'm wondering whether you think that's a bad thing. Uh, I don't think it promotes illiteracy. I think it creates another form of awareness. Uh, literacy had uh, very strange antecedents, very strange effects on people, and uh, we're only beginning to notice what those effects were now that it tends to be pushed aside. Uh, the uh, literacy uh, as a form of awareness is a, a highly specialist and objective sort of thing. You can stand back and the literate man can stand back objectively and look at situations. The TV person has no objectivity at all. But, but does television, say, promote illiteracy or doesn't it? It tends to uh, create a totally different kind of awareness, which is rather that of involvement. Literacy is objective. TV is subjective, totally involving. In fact, So that's the idea of the medium is the message. So let's do a little bit of thinking about that. And uh, just to get academic-y, let's go back to hieroglyphs. So imagine you know, Egyptian hieroglyphs. And there are pictures that represent ideas, ideas and objects. So, okay, you have a, you know, a picture of a cat and it represents uh, a warm, furry animal that sits in your lap. And then you get to a phonetic alphabet. So now you have C-A-T. So what does C-A-T represent? It represents kahat. It represents a sound. And the sound stands for a warm, furry animal that sits in your lap. So the people who use hieroglyphs and the people who use a phonetic alphabet, their brains are going to get totally wired up differently. They're going to think differently. They're going to be, in McLuhan's terms, different people. So the media, it doesn't matter what the hieroglyphs are saying or the alphabet is saying. Using them is going to wire up your brain in a certain way. And then we get print technology. And what print does is create a mass audience for the printed word. So it used to be that monks in monasteries would read. Most other people were not literate or maybe they could, you know, uh, read and write enough to, uh, uh, to say, uh, get two pounds of flour at the, at the market. But that'd be about it. But they weren't reading books. And books were rare and expensive because, you know, a rich Renaissance nobleman would say, I'd like to get a copy of Plutarch. So he'd go to the monastery and he'd, you know, get the, the top calligraphic monk and say, could you make me a copy of Plutarch? And the monk say, sure, you'll have it in six months. And the monk would spend the next six months with the live, the, you know, go to the, the monastery library, get out a copy of Plutarch, and copy it by hand, 
a page-by-page with nice illustrations and elegant letters over six months, hopefully not introducing too many errors. Uh, So not a lot of people had books. And then you get Guttenberg and the printing press. And now you're just churning these things out. And eventually with Charles Dickens, we have the, the, we heard the term the penny novel. So Dickens is writing these things. They print a bazillion of them. You buy them for a penny, which is probably a lot of money then. Uh, it's a little worth a little less due to inflation. But they were affordable. And the world was flooded. Now you start reading books. Now, Matt, you're reading. And so you start on the left. And your eye moves across the line. And there are these letters, T-H-E, the, uh, Q-U-I-C-K, quick, B-R-O-W, brown, the quick brown dog. That's not, that's an exercise in typing. They used to do that when they had real typewriters. There's a phrase, the quick down brown dog jumped over the something fence or something. And that would hit every letter in the typewriter. So if there was a bad letter, it would show up. Uh, but anyway... Um, so your eye moves across and you're putting together these components of letters from these sub or subcomponents of letters to make words. And from these components of words, you make sentences. And from these sentences, you derive meaning. And then you put together sentences to make a paragraph. Sound familiar? Sound like industrialization? You get component parts, and on an assembly line, you put them together, and next thing you know, you have an automobile made up of these subcomponents that are made up of subparts that are assembled in a linear process by factory workers. So McLuhan's point is, okay, print comes along. Everybody is reading the phonetic alphabet. Before, it was there, but it didn't have much effect. And <clears throat> your mind reads the, and then quick, and then brown. What? The quick brown. What is that? So you have to hold those meanings in reserve until dog jumped over the fence. Aha! The quick brown dog. Maybe it's a fox. Anyway, the quick brown fox jumped over the fence, <laughs> whatever it is, from me. People should know this from if you ever typed. Uh, but anyway, uh, which, you know, nobody does today anymore. <laughs> we all type with our thumbs, right? So um, your mind gets wired in a certain way to be able to read print. And which is different from, you know, sitting around the campfire listening to Homer tell stories about the Iliad and the Odyssey. So you go from an acoustical to a visual print culture. And as your brain gets wired, maybe you start to think in terms of linear additive processes. And it occurs to you, hey, why don't we make industrialization? Why don't we, instead of having a handcraft person make an individual single sofa, chair. Uh, let's have a, um, an 
assembly line process from pre-made components. Remember Guttenberg pre-made the A's, the B's, the C's in lead type. So what was Guttenberg? Two things, the printing press and movable lead type. So before that, you could print. Uh, I don't know if you did a linoleum block in school. I don't know if kids are allowed to have sharp objects in school anymore. (laughs) But you get a piece of wood with a piece of linoleum on it and a chisel. And you would scoop out the linoleum, leaving only an image. Um, Let's say the image was, when I did it, it was a boxer dog. And the letters ex libris lobel, right? So I made a, and then you would, everything else was scooped away. You rub ink on that and you press it on paper and you, you have to write ex libris lobel backwards. Uh, you, you press it on paper and you've made a little bookmark. What was it? A book something. Anyway, you paste that in your book. And it's from the library of John Lobel. It's my book. Uh, so in print shop, we do that and school. I, you know, <laughs> movable lead type. Wow. You know, then we went to this, uh, uh, this photographic type process and now it's all digital, but it was cool that I had that course. It was a quarter semester in, um, in type shop where we would actually take the A and the B and the C out of the tray in lead and put it and then lock it up and then put it in the press just to learn what that technology was. But anyway, McLuhan's point is the people who did that, the people who read that print technology, it altered their brain and made them linear logical people. And then you get TV. And, you know... We still read, but not as much. You sit in front of the TV, zonked out. <laughs> you know, like mesmerized, hour after hour. And you're not reading print. You're watching visual imagery. And it's calling on totally different parts of your brain. You know, visual parts rather than linear, logical, sequential parts. And it wires your brain differently. You remember, when you're born, your brain does not all, your brain is uh, not set. And as you grow up and you're played with and your your parents talk to you, and this is your toe and wiggle your toe, this is all getting your brain wired. And the richer that experience while you're growing up, the richer the wiring. But is the wiring acoustic or visual? Is it linear or holistic? And McLuhan's point is that in different cultures that have hieroglyphs or alphabets or print or TV, it wires the brain differently, leading to different people who act differently. That's And that's the medium. So it doesn't matter what is the content of the book you're reading, or it does, but it not from McLuhan's point, but it's wiring your brain in a certain way. And once it's wired that way, uh, you're going to live your life in a certain way. You'll be a certain kind of person. You'll be a linear logical person as opposed to a 
holistic person. And so McLuhan came just when TV was having a major impact and changing the way we were, the way we were wired, the way we were put together, the way we experienced each other. So the medium is the message means that all media are extensions of some human faculty, psychic or physical. So uh, let's uh, go back a moment and imagine, hang on, got to get a sip of water. Imagine that uh, we have a, excuse the word, a primitive culture. And <clears throat> at puberty, a boy makes a stone axe. And at this point, he can cut down a tree and make a home. So now he's signaled his readiness for marriage. And if he's a cool kid who's made a cool stone axe, the, uh, the desirable girls will want to marry him. And he'll get a wife. So uh, here we have this technology as an extension of your hand. You could uh, take the, uh, in a karate chop, you know, the edge of your hand and try to cut a tree. But having the hardness and sharpness of a stone axe uh, extends your hand and it's got the leverage. Imagine your hand being the, 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 um, Handle of the axe extends the reach of your arm, increases the um, increases the blow compared to just holding the axe blade in your hand. The arm of the or handle of the axe extends it, so it's an extension of your body, and it forms you in a certain way. Or certain the creatures who have stone axes are different from the creatures who don't. They in, interact with their environment differently. Uh, they can live in different environments. They can build different kinds of homes, et cetera, et cetera, by this extension of their body. Now the anthropologists come along and see, uh, uh, you know, are interacting with this tribe, and they see the difficulty that they're having with their stone axes. They're not that good. <clears throat> and they say, you know, we happen to have a whole supply of uh, of steel axes here. Uh, we'll give everybody a steel axe. I'll help you guys out. So now everybody has a steel axe, including all the girls. And anybody can cut down a tree 10 times easier than you can with a stone axe. So ceremonially, the boy uh, makes his stone axe and he says to the girl, I've, I'm, I'm now qualified. I've got this stone axe. I can cut down a tree. And the girl says, well, what's the big deal? I've got a steel axe. I can cut one down in a quarter of the time. So now you've screwed up marriage in that tribe. You screwed up their whole social structure. So these technologies are extensions of us, change us, and change the way we interact. They can be physical, like binoculars, eyeglasses. Big help for me. Uh, I can actually see because <laughs> I have this extension of my uh, of the lenses of my eyes called eyeglasses. So um, McLuhan sees all that, and he sees this electronic media coming along. But uh, the first step, the first biggie in electronic media is the telegraph. And so let's go to another cut. And um, what the telegraph did, if you, if you saw, you could see lots of examples of it, but... During the 
a book or TV series on John Adams. During the Civil War, America was fighting the British and the French were the colony's allies. Now, how do you coordinate with the French ally when it takes six weeks to get a message to France and six weeks to get an answer back? And the answer is with a lot of difficulty. What happens when you lay your first transatlantic cable? And six weeks become a thousandth of a second. So let's look uh, to what McLuhan says in Cut 3 about the telegraph. Why? Hardware. Yeah. Why? Hardware is you know, paper and pen and ink. And uh, courier sending this missive to uh, another party somewhere else. You mean it's not a transient? It's not instant. Thing, okay, it's not, it's, it's uh, the electric is always instantaneous. There's no delay. And that's why you don't have a body. Instantaneous communication is minus the body. So that began with the telegraph. The telegraph also had that uh, built-in dimension of the instantaneous and it completely transformed news and information. Mere, the mere speed. It didn't matter what was written, the fact that it went at the speed of light transformed everything. It caused the Civil War. Okay, so if you saw the uh, recent movie, maybe five years ago, uh, Lincoln, and they show the war room during the Civil War, and it's <laughs> it's the Internet! They they know what's going on everywhere instantly. Um, you know, they don't have to wait a day for the messenger to get there whether or not we lost this battle or that battle. It's due to the telegraph. It's all instant. And, of course, uh, the, the big uh, cutting down the enemy's telegraph wires is a, is a part of battle. So uh, it, it really changes the world. And McLuhan has whole chapters on this. What happens when England and Europe is instantly right there uh, next to the United States? We can hear news back and forth just as quickly as we can from New York to Philadelphia. And, you know, New York to Philadelphia before the telegraph, they could could get the uh, news there in less than a day. But um, with the telegraph, it becomes instantly New York to Washington or New York to Philadelphia, and instantly New York to London as soon as they've laid the transatlantic cables. So what does it mean that we're instantaneously connected to all parts of the world? And then one more step. Let's listen to one about TV and then think about what's going on for ourselves today. So cut for the effects of TV. I didn't say it didn't matter what you asked on TV. I said that the effect of TV, the message of TV, is quite independent of the program. That is, there is a huge technology involved in TV which surrounds you physically. And the effect of that huge service environment on you personally is vast. The effect of the program is incidental. Okay, so I, you know... Just to uh, now, let's look at digital as we wrap up here, and <clears throat> to kind of confess how old I am. So let's go step by step, 
And I got my f- first computer, a Macintosh, in the first 100 days of the Mac. So there were computers. <coughs> Apple II is about, what is it, 1978, sometime around then. But um, you know, I was anxious to get a computer because I did a lot of writing. And <coughs> word processing was going to be a big help, not having to retype everything. But, you know, what computer to get? They're expensive. They're difficult. And there was uh, the Apple II used uh, Apple operating system. IBM came out with what was called DOS, Disk Operating System. One of the great horror stories of all time, DOS. And <laughs> you had it, this telephone book uh, next to you. So in DOS, if you want a word to, you know, you, you're writing the quick brown fox and you want quick to be italic. So you type something like T-H-E space um, uh, carrot, carrot, slash, Q-I-C-K, slash, slash, carrot, carrot, you know, brown, to tell it to be a t- I'd be happy. How do you remember that? Even to just to print, how, what, that there's, you know, like about 15 keystrokes that you have to, there's no menus. You just have only keys, no mouse in DOS. So you have these keystrokes you have to hit to tell the thing to print. And so you have this telephone book next to your, next to your keyboard on your desk to remind you of these commands. Well, then the Mac came out. And it's what we all experience today, whether it's Windows or Mac, uh, with GUI, graphical user interface. And you just go to file, click, print, pull down menu comes, click on print, uh, click OK, and it prints. So the Mac introduced that. I bought one right away. And then uh, got a modem, very slow. But you're just using it. Uh, okay, then there were server. You could subscribe to Genie or you could subscribe to CompuServe. And you could send email to other people, but only from genie to genie. Or, and then AOL came along. AOL began with Mac, and it was right there taking advantage of the graphical user interface. And then it jumped over to Windows when Microsoft imitated uh, Apple with uh, Windows. And so now you could send email, but only to people who, you know, were also on AOL or also on CompuServe. AOL went out. Everybody got on AOL. You could email most people. And then real email happened, that you could email from anybody to anybody as long as they had an account. And then there were things like they would sell a book with the email addresses of famous people. You know, like you could only email people that you knew you knew them. And then um, the Internet started, and we still got Mosaic, which was the first browser, and then uh, quickly after that, Netscape. Uh, but you could only, you had to know somebody's URL or the company's URL, you know. And then the first search came along so that if you, if you said, well, I want to reach, I mentioned it before, Kodak, uh, you, you know, you put Kodak into Yahoo!, It's one of the early searches, and Jerry Yang became very rich. Um, 
So this stuff builds up, and we start to get interconnected. So I bring my Mac out to school, and uh, we get this, this long rope, and we tie a brick to it, and we swing it outside the window uh, all the way up to the window next door, which is my office, <laughs> pull the rope in, and then we can pull a very long phone cord so we could plug in. We could plug in the uh, the modem uh, so that we could communicate. You know, I could show the kids what it meant to get online. Uh, cool. So let's just jump ahead. Now we're walking around with that in our pockets, right? So the uh, first cell phones, you could call anybody. It's expensive. Uh you were watching your minutes. There's no such thing as unlimited, stuff like that. But, uh, you know, but then we got the smartphone. I was smart. <laughs> I didn't get the Apple One. Uh, I'm sorry, the uh, iPhone One or the iPhone Two. I waited for the Three that actually worked. <laughs> but even with the Three, with um, with G3 service, be sitting in a restaurant and say, oh, I'll look that up. And, uh, you know, five minutes later, someone would say, uh, did it find it yet? <laughs> so our, our G4 service is uh, really, I mean, it's still sometimes slow, but we're, it's so much better. So this idea of being in touch with anybody always all the time and then doing away with money. So my sister's kid is in Germany and we communicate with FaceTime, sometimes Skype, but usually FaceTime. And so I just uh, yesterday went over to my sister's place and set up FaceTime and Skype on our laptop so she can talk to her daughter. For, unlimited for free. When I, was, when I was in college, I did this, you know, sophomore summer in, uh, in Europe thing. And... Uh, so we send letters back. My, my buddies were already doing the year in Paris. So we're sending letters back and forth about how I'm supposed to meet them. You know, I have to go to there in Paris. I have to land in London, get a train to Munich, buy a BMW motorcycle, drive to Paris. What? Where do I meet them? What's the? How did people get along before GPS? I don't know. I have some map to get from Munich to, to their apartment in Paris. But... To really pin it down, we then had to talk on the phone. So, you know, you send the, and the letters are taking a week each way, right? Uh, and, you know, airmail wasn't even cheap. But the phone was, I don't know, like $10 a minute or something like that. So we say, okay, we're going to make the phone call at this time. I warned my roommates, uh, it's going to show up on the bill. I'll pay the 10 bucks for the, you know, I'm sitting there with my watch. Got to make sure the call doesn't go over a minute. Uh, today, I just, you know, hit FaceTime, talk to my niece in Germany, chatter away. It doesn't cost a penny. So uh, that's a little bit about the world that McLuhan told us was going to happen. He wrote it all in the 60s. What does it mean? How does it change us? Get the books. Um, understanding media, it's a bit of a slog, even though it's really cool. And then the easy graphic illustrated short version is the medium is the massage, M-A-S-S-A-G-E. You can pick them up used uh, very affordably on, 
on Amazon. So this is John LaBelle. This has been Visionaries, and we'll see you next week, Mondays at, well, 10 New York time and any time on the archives.